Welcome to episode 132 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Rick Kornfeld, president and CEO at Kitu Systems. Kitu Systems accelerates consumer adoption of solar, battery storage, and electric vehicle charging by enabling communications and coordination of these assets by leveraging their grid action platform to provide the foundation for new energy networks that are intelligent, resilient, adaptive, efficient, scalable, and secure. This year, Distributech will be returning to early February and also to glorious San Diego. It will be my first return to California since my wife and I moved, and we are very excited. If you're going to be there, please say hi to me and to many of my former and future Climate Champions guests, including Rick and Team Kitu. Spoiler alert, they'll be at the iTron booth. You can't miss it. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Rick has worked for some of the San Diego region's most notable tech companies, including Linkabit, Qualcomm, and Texas Instruments. Prior to Kitu Systems, Rick was most recently Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer for NextWave Wireless and NextWave Broadband, and prior to that, served as President and CEO of Staccato Communications. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Rick Kornfeld, CEO of Kitu Systems. Rick, welcome to the Climate Champions. Fantastic to be here, Lee. It's fantastic to have you on the show. I feel like we've known each other a very long time. I don't remember the first time. I know we met. We were both on the uh, Council of Advisors for the UCSD Engineering School. Yes. But I think we may have met before that in the context of your role at SCG&E. When you were CEO of Grid to Home, we met, and that was a very long time ago, it seems. It is. And you know, the thing is, you may not know that Kitu Systems is actually Grid to Home. We just changed the name. I thought that you did. Yeah. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? What got you started? I, I guess I'd have to consider myself to be an entrepreneur. And when you're an entrepreneur, you have gaps. So you have a gap because you, you, know, you may have founded a company or maybe part of a team in a company and the company has an exit. And after usually some period of time with the acquiring company, you find yourself you know, thinking, well, now what? And it's an interesting thing to do is to, is to have that sort of reflection of now what? And about a dozen years ago, I had one of those moments. And I can, I can get into some of the details here a little bit later, but I, I really started to think about what do I want to do? I mean, I've accomplished things that I set out to accomplish in my career, but I thought, boy, what I really want to do is something that, you know, has a social benefit, something that is good for the planet, good for the people, and has a lot of commercial opportunity. So I, I really am not big on mixing philanthropy and commercial uh, endeavors. And there were two areas that I was very interested in. One of them was e-health and the other one was clean tech. And I thought in both areas, I have something of value to add. And I actually immersed myself 
you know, kind of on a volunteer basis in both. And I probably spent about, oh, half a year. And that was really it. I was, I really thought at that point, about a dozen years ago, maybe a little bit more, you know, no expert on the climate and the science behind the temperature increase and all the rest of it. But I believe the science, I believe what I'd read. And I really wanted to uh, do something to make a big difference. And, and that was really the turning point for me. You say you're not an expert in the science. How do you go about convincing people that climate change is important and something worthwhile to spend their time trying to mitigate? That's a tough question to answer. I have done that. I think we've probably all had those kinds of conversations with people, you know, very intelligent people, thoughtful people that don't believe. I don't know if delving deep into the science, if, if I could, and I've, I've actually read some very interesting books about climate change, which go into the dynamics of the climate and, you know, how um, different greenhouse gases uh, break down, how and why they uh, affect uh, climate. I don't know if that's as much of it as, as today, at least, you can see the evidence of it. And I think that's probably more. And when you talk to people, you can see. Now, you can't say, well, here's a particular storm event that's linked to climate change. That's, in fact, the science doesn't even support that. But you can talk to people and say, you have noticed that on average, anecdotally, the climate is different. And we have more and more evidence coming from experts that says that uh, the temperature is rising and that's going to lead to and leading to disruptions that are far worse than anything we're seeing now. And I think it seems to be resonating. Even There's even people who have been longtime, I don't know if I would say deniers, but longtime people who sort of say, well, okay, I may accept that there's some climate change, but the cost of mitigating it is, doesn't balance the threat of climate change. And even, even people like that, I believe, are having epiphanies now. There's somebody who I read in the New York Times, Brett Stevens, I don't know if you read him, and he, he was in Greenland recently, and he had his epiphany about this whole thing. And, you know, when diehards like Brett Stevens, I think, come around, I think that gives us a little bit of hope. By the way, I think he's a, also a very intelligent, thoughtful editorialist. And so I, I think that it makes a lot of difference. The scientists that I talk to say that while they can't say definitively that these events are caused by climate change, they can say that based on the models each one of these is a hundred to one shot, once in a hundred years, once in 50 years, and that there's a 99% chance that it wouldn't have happened without the weather being different than it is. That's what scientists do because anything can happen. They can never say it's a hundred percent, but they can say that the modeling supports that it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the fact that we do have a warming climate now. Exactly. You can't have a hundred year storm every year in a row you know, for a half dozen years. There, there's a chance you can pull the lever on a slot machine and win big, but it's not going to happen every pull. I just read a book recently about this. They talked about actually very specific probabilities of these kinds of events, whether they're these freak waves that we're seeing in the oceans or some of the storm events, the heat events, things like that. And the number one, of course, just the melting, the obscene melting of the glaciers. Right. I guess that's not necessarily weather, but that's causing a lot of the weather things that we're seeing. Right. What is your personal driver for pushing hard to make this happen? I would say that it's evolved somewhat uh, over time. You know, I think when I first started on this path I'm on, and like I said, I, it's been about a dozen years, maybe more. You know, I had a feeling about it, but I, I think at this point, I am extraordinarily concerned about it. I feel like we, and by we, I mean our generation. The planet has entrusted our generation to 
run it at this point in time. And we're leaving this planet to our children and our grandchildren, I, I, I believe, in a much, much worse state. And I feel enormous responsibility to try to do what I can to try to at least mitigate that. I do not believe that we can unwind it at this point. Um, I think we're we're well past that. And I don't think we're even doing enough as a planet to reach the goals like, you know, the one and a half degree goal, things like that. So I'm, I'm sadly not very optimistic, but I think there's things that we can do that can improve what will be a bad situation. And I mean bad in terms of of course, the climate and the things like storms and heat and all that, but also the fundamental disruption that we're going to see in terms of populations, in terms of access to water, in, in terms of political upheaval, all of which I think we are leaving for our children. I, I'm, I'm extraordinarily concerned about that. I often talk about, depending on the conversation I have with my guest, it puts me in a good mood or a bad mood. <laughs> and I agree with you. In my sober moments, I agree with you completely. I'm very, very concerned. On the positive side, there's technologies like yours and many others that are hoping to make a dent in this, but the speed just isn't there. And I also think that, unfortunately, this should be the Manhattan Project for the globe, and it's not. And I, I don't think there's a commitment yet. We're seeing it improve. We are seeing improvements. We, we saw even in the, in the United States improvement. Now, whoever the president is 2025, I don't know where that's going to be. So I am I, also worried about the, the commitment. And I think that very often a commitment is made once you, in a way, fall off the precipice. That, that, that's fine if you're a company and you need to make a fundamental change because your revenue numbers aren't worth what you wanted. Okay. We're talking about the planet here and things that are not reversible for millennium. And that is uh, concerning me. I really wish there was more of a global commitment to this. Me too. We have two uh, Eeyores on, on the call today. I, uh, we're, we're both uh, pessimists, maybe, in some ways. You know Eeyore from uh, Winnie the Pooh? Oh, yeah. I know him. Exactly. I go back and forth. It depends on the perspective I have at the moment. But as I said, when I'm really thinking about it, I know we're in deep, deep, deep trouble just trying to do what I can. What's positive in all this, at least for, for you, I, I would assume, and for me, is that you know we're doing something about it. I hope it has an impact. I think it will have some impact. In other words, there's fretting about it and wringing your hands, and then there's doing all that and doing something about it. And I've dedicated a good part of my career and my entire future career to this. I feel at least that I'm doing something. In business, you learn to compartmentalize. You always have issues. You always have many things you're working on. You can't let them bleed into each other. Each one has to be something that you're focusing on in the moment. And so I have that capability to compartmentalize all these concerns and all this fear and to some extent sadness and live my life not thinking about it until I choose to think about it. And so that's a good thing. Otherwise, I think I'd be in big trouble. I'm the same way. I think compartmentalization is a gift that we humans have. Otherwise, we would be, uh, you know, blubbering idiots all the time. Let's get into the nitty gritty. What do you and what does Key Two Systems do to help mitigate climate change? Well, what we're really about is helping to enable e-mobility, electrification of the home, decarbonization, 
And the way we do that is that a, a lot of those things, e-mobility directly and some of these other things, involve a change in the way that energy electricity is generated or consumed. And to do that effectively, you need to be able to communicate with these often distributed devices, often owned by customers, sometimes called behind the meter devices. You need to be able to intelligently communicate with them and coordinate. When you say you need to communicate and coordinate with them, do you mean the utility or key two systems? What I mean is a whole set of service providers, a utility being one of them, with a goal in mind. Sometimes that goal is regulatory. Sometimes that goal is grid stability. It can be simply making up for lost generation, or it can be simply commercial. And those service providers make their way to those devices to coordinate them. And they do that, I would hope all of them would, but largely through us. So what we're about is a set of basically an end-to-end platform, communication platform that allows for that communication and the intelligence that enables the sorts of things we're talking about, e-mobility or electrification of the home and so forth. So it's not a microgrid controller. It's a way that someone that wants to control things and tell them what to do can. It's more the communication networking layer. It's really the networking layer plus. I'll give you some examples. Thank you. I mentioned that there are multiple service providers that want to control a device. There's value in that control. It's, it's a sort of commodity, a valuable commodity. And that value is the things I mentioned. It could be grid reliability, it can be commercial, it can be other things. So there has to be a way to intelligently and equitably share that control. That's something that our platform does. It allows for that sharing of control of a single device. You need to be able to do things like understand where that device is in terms of that control, because where it is on the grid, if you're trying, if you're a utility trying to stabilize the grid, you need to know what transformer or feeder or substation that device attaches through, and you need to be able to adjust your controls based on location. You may follow what happens in Texas. On a warm day, for example, in the late spring in May, they had huge swings in the location, what's called locational marginal pricing. So basically the wholesale pricing for electricity going from plus thousands of dollars per megawatt hour to negative over the span of 80 miles. And that's that's a huge, that's huge. And you need a system that understands that. It understands location. It understands these control sharing. It understands these things and does it in an abstracted way that allows for the control and or the situational awareness of the information coming back in a way that can apply to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of devices. And so all of that is, is what we do. Now, when you ask about a microgrid controller, we are inside things that look like microgrid controllers because that's also about communication. Because what I'm describing is, in a way, a horizontal communication capability. But for us and anyone else, you really have to go to market with, as well, verticals that actually solve a use case. And the way I think about verticals is solving of a particular use case. And there's probably many dozens of use cases that are applicable and many, many more that are coming that we haven't even identified. And we, of course, go to market with specific use cases as well. So we solve specific problems on an end-to-end basis. We don't have a microcontroller per se, but that would, to me, would be a particular use case. And even within that, there are specific use cases or sub-use cases within the category of microgrid controller. And that's what I was interested in. Do you have the use cases solved or you're just the communication layer? And it sounds like you're the communication layer, 
but you also have implemented particular use cases that you think are valuable or important and you've tackled them on your own. Exactly. I think what's different about us is that we started from the horizontal and then we go to market with use cases. If you look at a lot of other implementations, what they do is they start with the vertical and they implement a small part of the horizontal that's needed for that vertical. And the big difference there is that when you think about the overall ecosystem and trying to coordinate everything from electric vehicles to baseboard heaters to whatever it is, that you need, you really want one harmonized way to do all of that. There's so much more value in doing that. The starting from the vertical and working down doesn't lead to that. And we see that because we see, for example, in the electric vehicle ecosystem, a very different set of technologies and approaches and, and kind of way of control than you do in the way you're controlling, for example, photovoltaic systems or stationary battery. In other words, they're diverging. And the way we approach it, it is harmonized from the get-go. And I think going the other way, it causes divergence, which I don't think will serve people and serve all the use cases well into the future. Can you talk about how COVID has impacted your business? I think it's probably very similar to a lot of other businesses. When the lockdowns first happened, we all started working remotely. Up until that point, we, of course, had all the tools. We didn't really use them. We hardly used video conferencing and anything else. And like everybody else, we've embraced them. Up until that point, we were all based in San Diego. At this point now, a quarter of our team is not. We learned that these tools work. We learned that people want to be remote. We started hiring people outside of San Diego. And we had people who were living in San Diego that preferred to live somewhere else. And so I think that's the biggest change for us. We're a software company. We have a um, what's called an agile development process. And one of the virtues of that, we can track our efficiency reasonably well. What we noticed when we first went remote was that our efficiency went up. I almost think sometimes that happens because any change causes a change in efficiency. And what we found is it went up and then it's, we started to see it track down. We got very concerned, but it tracked down and became steady state to where it was before COVID. I believe we're just as efficient as we were before, even though we're largely remote. We just had our holiday party, for example, and we, we did our holiday party. About half the people were there, maybe a quarter didn't show up, I don't know. And about a quarter were remote. And we managed to make it, all of us, virtually together. We even did the gift exchange. We did everything <laughs> that we normally do for a holiday party. I think overall, it's a positive, some of this. I do hope that companies and our company will have more face-to-face -face time because as much as we've been efficient, I also think there's something about human interaction that you don't get through the screen. And when we, when we do meet in person, and we do, of course, meet in person, I really enjoy it. We've started uh, something we call Together Tuesdays to try to get people to uh, completely voluntary come to work on Tuesdays. You know, people do, they don't, but it is nice. And I, like, I do like seeing people in person. Can you talk more about your prior background and how you got where you are today? In high school, in the early part of college, I worked as a mechanic and I love mechanical things. I don't have a mechanical degree at all. I love turning a wrench and I love the immediate gratification of that kind of thing. But I actually began my career at Linkabit. Now, I don't know if you know Linkabit. You're, you were spent time in San Diego. Linkabit, which was uh, founded in the 60s, was is sort of the root of the communications tree in the same way that Fairchild is the root of the semiconductor tree in the, in the Bay Area. 
And I was an engineer, electrical engineer. My, my background is RF and RF systems. And I worked as an engineer in defense contracting and, and that kind of thing at uh, Linkabit. I joined Qualcomm towards the very beginning of Qualcomm, right after Qualcomm started. And, you know, people don't even realize this, that Qualcomm did a lot of military contracting as well. And I did that at Qualcomm and actually enjoyed that kind of work a lot. But the thing I did at Qualcomm, I think that had a lot of impact was really had to do with what Qualcomm did around cellular, which is really what Qualcomm's known the most for. It was a form of 2G. You know, we're, we're up to 5G now. Back then it was 2G, which was called CDMA, which is a kind of communication mechanism. I was VP of engineering and I led all of the development of the cellular handsets at Qualcomm. And after Qualcomm, I really decided to move from engineering to the business side. So my, my next thing, I was actually a fa- uh, one of the founders of a company that was a cellular carrier. And I had a, a, more, a business role and I've had business roles since. Founded a company called Dot Wireless in uh, 1997. And we were developing chipsets for cellular and sold that company to TI in 2000. And then I uh, ran TI's merchant market cellular business for about four and a half years. TI had the business was split into two. They had a custom business, which was significantly larger, and the cellular, uh, the uh, merchant cellular, which was uh, you know more market driven than customer driven. And I ran that business and grew it quite a bit. We grew that from about 180 million when I began to 750 million, which is what it was when I left. And I had about 800 people under me. And I, I mentioned before, you know, really all over: San Diego, Dallas, France, Denmark, Germany. When would you say you flipped to entrepreneur? Probably after Qualcomm. I think people, you know, when I was at Linkabit and I was looking at going to Qualcomm, now Qualcomm was only a few people when I joined. And I think people looked at, looked at that as what I was doing as entrepreneurial, but I didn't. I, I didn't think of it that way. I was very young and I was looking at people who I knew something about. Qualcomm was formed by the Linkabit founders. So it was really an extension. But I think in my mind, becoming an entrepreneur means you're aware of what you're doing and you're aware of the entrepreneurial sort of side of what you're doing. And that was really when I went from Qualcomm and was one of the founders of a company called NextWave, which was a, a cellular carrier. Can you talk about some of the setbacks you've had in your career? I'd like to say you learn from your setbacks as much as you do from your accomplishments. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but it makes us feel better maybe. What, what I would say is that We've all made decisions that, I mean, obviously that have gone well, and we made decisions that have not. For me, in terms of regret, the regret isn't so much when I make a decision that doesn't work out the way I wanted it to. It's when I make a decision where I don't look at the evidence, I don't dispassionately really think about what I'm doing, and I make the decision anyway, either because I don't have the discipline at that moment, or I let my emotions uh, make the decision for me. When you make decisions like that and they don't work out, to me, that's that's a regret because you knew better. There are decisions I've made which haven't worked out. And I, even when I look back a decade or more later, I think, you know, I, the information wasn't there for me to know that. And I don't have the same feeling about it. Of course, luck plays into all this. And, uh, you know, I think people can tell you, the, you know, like the guy from the Titanic, you know, a real man makes his own luck. All right, that's good for him. But you know, I'm not sure it's true. I, I think that there's good luck and bad luck, I suppose. Uh, you need to be able to uh, leverage the good. Uh, but we, you know, I, I, I certainly think I've benefited from 
jelly side up uh, on a few occasions too. Jelly side up. I love that. <laughs> Can you talk about the successes that you're most proud of? I would say back at Qualcomm, we were in the middle of a fundamental disruption. And that disruption was, and, and I don't know if people frame it this way usually, but it was the disruption from a communication device being located to a place, going from that to a communication device being located with a person. And more specifically, what I mean is the disruption that happened in cellular. Now, Qualcomm didn't invent cellular, but I think what Qualcomm did, which of course was a big part of 2G, but also 3G as well, was to be part of that, that disruption. And I feel like what I did at Qualcomm was absolutely necessary. Being responsible for all the handsets, there would be no Qualcomm if those handsets were not available. Because you know people had, at that point had maybe begrudgingly accepted that the technical approach was correct, but did not accept that you could build handsets that were small enough, consumer friendly, cheap enough, you know, all the, all the rest of it, they did not accept that. It was not an easy thing to do. In fact, there were a lot of people even inside Qualcomm that didn't believe it was possible. Either I was uh, smart enough or stupid enough to think it was. And um, I think that to me, being part of that fundamental transition is uh, something I'm really proud of. And I would say, and this isn't your question, but I would say that we're in that same transition again in what we're doing. The transition in terms of mobility and in terms of how energy is generated and consumed to enormous markets, enormous critical parts of the way the world works are both fundamentally transforming and they're doing it together. And that disruption we now are in the middle of. Now, I hope when we have, when I'm on your podcast in another 10 years, I can look back and say, now that was the greatest accomplishment because we haven't done it yet. Um, but I think we are in that transition. We're in that inflection point. It's hard to know when you're in the middle of an inflection point. It's easier when you know to look in the rearview mirror at that, but I believe we're right in the middle of it. And I think what we're doing is foundational to the success of that transition. I think we're certainly in the middle of it. I think we can recognize that just because of what's going on in the world. And I hope that I have somehow a Star Trek moment, because that's what I'm calling what you had, the development of technology from Star Trek. How cool is that? Right. Marty Cooper and the uh, yes. flip phone or whatever that, the uh, communicator and yep. Now look what we have. Yep. When you look ahead 10, 20, 30 years, and you've talked about this already a little bit in a pretty negative way. So where do you think we're going to be? How bad is it going to get? And how successful will we be? in helping to mitigate. So you want me to be Eeyore again? I'm not positive. Let's say by 2050, you know, I think we, you know, and I don't know whether we're going to actually hit the tipping points. And I don't know if anybody really knows whether it's, you know, the trapped methane or, or some fundamental melting of glaciers, which could have a huge impact in terms of, like I said before, political disruption and disease and death and, you know, really fundamentally changing the quality of life for everyone. You, you know, it's interesting that the United States, which is, you know, has an outsized responsibility for where we are, will probably be less impacted than other other places on the planet by some of these changes, which I don't necessarily feel good about, but I, I just, it's a, it's a fact, I believe. When you talk about it not affecting the U.S. as much as other places, look at the Ukraine war. That looks like it's not happening here. 
but it's causing a lot of impact all around the world. We're all together in everything that happens that's major now. I agree with you. I agree with that 100%. What I would say that is positive, there are things that are happening that are, that are positive and I'm sort of head down on what my company's doing. And, you know, so I probably don't see a lot of, of, of the interesting things that are happening technology-wise. You see the, all those things, I think, in, in your position here. But I think things like battery technology. Now, you look at battery technology, and I'm no expert on battery technology, but I can look at the trends. In the same way that I can look at Moore's Law and predict the future with Moore's Law, I can predict the future with battery uh, trends. And I've looked at those trends. And I look in maybe not 2050, but 2035. And batteries will be, I believe, 10x better than they are today. And they're, they're very good today. 10x smaller, lighter, and maybe not 10x, but maybe approaching 10x cheaper. I looked into this at one point, and there is a law, Swanson's Law, that talks about getting cheaper through manufacturing and through process optimization, so not the technology of Moore's Law. And I believe 18%, I think, per year is what it, on average, it is just through manufacturing. So we're going to get a lot of benefits still. I just took another look at Swanson's Law, and it's named after Richard Swanson, the founder of SunPower, the solar panel manufacturer, and it is specific to the solar industry price reductions over time. But there is a more general rights law which states that there will be a fixed cost reduction for each doubling of manufacturing volume, more commonly referred to as the learning curve. And it was first developed and applied to the aeronautics industry in 1936 by Theodore Paul Wright. And 18% over 10 years is a lot. It's a lot. Because also there's going to be technology stuff that happens. It's not just going to be manufacturing. And, you know, I looked at this and I said, you know, boy, Moore's Law, people have predicted the end of Moore's Law for 20 years. They did. And I was never really able to say you're wrong and here's definitively why, except that the existence proof of the fact that it's been wrong says a lot. Will, will the battery trend continue till 2050 to, to the next uh, century? I don't know. But we've got a long way to go because I look at things like, what is the energy density of gasoline? Certainly, we can get to that. The energy density of gasoline is 14 times from where we are today. And the energy density of hydrogen, in terms of at least weight, is, I think, double that. So we can go a long way with things that exist, like fossil fuels in terms of energy density, which I think will have a large impact on cost as well. And I think a 10x improvement, which I think is, I think, is achievable and below where the energy density of gasoline is, will have a profound effect. California, for example, has a regulation that says you, you won't be able to sell fossil fuel-based cars, barring exceptions, in, by 2035. I don't know who is going to want one by 2035. <laughs> the cost of the battery and the whole system will be such that it will be, it, it will just simply not be reasonable unless you happen to like the smell of exhaust to want to buy a fossil fuel car. And I think there are some disruptions like that that are happening that I think are, are very, very positive. When you talk about really inexpensive batteries, now things like local generation becomes much more possible. The amount of solar you need or wind that you need locally, whether it's at a home, which may not apply to wind as much or other sites, there are predictions that say 
with a reasonable amount of solar, wind, and battery, that the cost of generation locally is less than the current cost of transmission, which is a huge disruption. Even if fission, which is in the news, was free, it's still going to be cheaper to generate at home. I think we could get there. I don't know when, but I think we could get there. So these are positives. So I don't want to be a downer the whole interview. These are positives, I think, that uh, we, should, uh, we should be embracing. You know, Lee, you mentioned the war in, U- in the Ukraine, and you're absolutely right that that's having an impact. Um, and there's the, the political impact and the world order and, and all of that. And that's a long discussion. And I, I'd love to have that discussion with you at some point. But I think that from an energy perspective, there's something to be learned there. I mean, what's, what's happened in Europe? I mean, Europe has been in many ways leading in terms of climate change. What they're doing now is burning coal. And there's, there's a lesson there. And now I don't know whether the, the coal that they're burning, how that's going to change the trajectory overall on, for example, the one and a half degree goal coming out of the more recent analysis or not. But it's a lesson about building bridges to where we need to go. For example, we want to get to a completely renewable place that, that we need to build a bridge there. The United States built that bridge through natural gas. I think that's very positive. And I think that, it, I think to me, one of the lessons there is the all or nothing approach that sometimes people on both sides take to me is troubling. I think we need to build these bridges. We need a all of the above strategy. And that includes nuclear, I think, to, to really get there. What's happened in Ukraine, not to mention the fact that much of Europe has been held hostage to fossil fuels coming out of Russia. The writing was on the wall long before you know, February of this year on what, what that was going to result in. I think these are some lessons that are, are positive lessons from some of the really devastating things that are happening there. Can you give some advice to our listeners that want to do something to help mitigate climate change? There's a lot that we can do as individuals. You can dedicate your career to you know, climate change. Now, that's, most people are not going to do that. My daughter just left Adobe, and she's starting at a new company called Aurora Solar. One of the big drivers is so that her software engineering skills will be used for good. Not that Adobe is bad. I'll tell you something. I interview every single person that joins our company. And I don't usually do a technical interview. I, I'm the sort of soft interview. But I ask everyone about what is their view or how passionate are they around climate change? And are, are they doing this, for example, as a software person? Is software to you dollars per lines of code? Or is it software that's helping to save the planet? That's a very different thing in terms of how you perceive your job and how you perceive what you do. And you know, individuals, back to the original question, can certainly find their way to a company that is one of the multi, multiple facets of clean technology because there are enormous opportunities here. It's not like you're sacrificing anything. But I also think, and the reason I started to say that people don't have to dedicate their career, because, but again, I think they can. It's really a great place to be. If I go back when I was uh, in the cellular side of things, that was a great place to be in terms of a job. And I think that also helped a lot of people in, in a lot of ways. There was, there was a lot of social benefit to, to building that kind of infrastructure for people. But people can do things individually too. There are things like when you go to replace your lawnmower to get an electric one. There are little small things that you can do. I think at this point, an electric car for most people is something that's pretty much at cost parity. And if they live in a place where they can they can have the charging infrastructure, for example, at home, 
then they're actually not giving anything up. They're actually gaining a lot because it's, it is so much more convenient, honestly, to charge at home than it is to uh, drive to a gas station. I know my daughter just got a car, but they're, they just moved. They're living in an apartment. They've got no charging infrastructure, so she got a plug-in hybrid. So I think there are small things we can do, and I don't think you have to measure what you do by, oh, what I did today is lowering the temperature, global temperature by X, because there's no way to measure that. But you can do small things that cumulatively have an impact, and I think people should. If people think about it in the decisions they make, and it's one of the factors, they'll make decisions that will, I think, trend towards helping the climate. I agree. I agree. And on that note... I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Well, you wanted to help the climate, but also build wealth. So you evaluated between clean tech and e-health. You said it depends on who we elect, but you think the world should treat climate like the Manhattan Project. Key to systems, they're products that can control and to stabilize the grid on the earth is your goal. The earliest job shared by Rick was that you enjoyed so much being a mechanic. Sometimes you spill your plate, sometimes your cup, you just have to hope it falls jelly side up. We're using coal in Europe because of the energy drain. It's caused in a large part by the war in Ukraine. You shared your, your opinion that you held. Thank you so much, Rick Kornfeld. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. This was really a pleasure. I loved hearing about Rick taking some time to really think about his career and consider what he could do to make a difference in the world, about how he did not get into clean tech because of climate change, but now he wouldn't work on anything but. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatteenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rated five stars if you're an Apple user and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Rick pointed out that while not everyone can find a career in clean tech, although there are a growing number of opportunities, if you keep sustainability top of mind, there are many ways to make a difference. For example, his daughter didn't have a way to charge at home, so she bought a plug-in hybrid vehicle, a great example of how to help mitigate climate change.